Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. The following episode is from Marxist University, a series of discussions held in the fall of 2020 to introduce people to the most fundamental and pressing Marxist ideas. Postmodernism is very popular on university campuses and is even starting to gain an echo in the labor movement. Postmodernism denies the very idea of historical progress. Scientific truth is also sidelined in favor of a subjective emphasis on language, experience, and identity. In this talk, Fight Back activist Al discusses where these ideas come from and what Marxists have to say about them. All right, so um, I'm going to be discussing some topics that are pretty uh, misunderstood generally, both on the left and the right, in hopes of uh, clarifying what Marxists mean when we talk about postmodernism, and also in that what we mean when we talk about Marxism. So in the past few years, we've had a lot of uh, academics and political commentators, such as Jordan Peterson, uh, who have attacked this specter of like postmodern neo-Marxism, and they've attempted to equate the ideas of Marxism with postmodernism. And on the more liberal left side in academia, many tried to claim that Marxism and postmodernism are similar ideas as well. And as we know, um, the ideas of postmodernism have completely infected the universities. So a lot of these academics uh, attempt to give a Marxist coloration to postmodern ideas. However, in reality, these are two completely different schools of thought. And all this conflation really does is create an opening uh, for an opening in Marxism for the right wing to come in and distort our ideas. Ultimately, both these positions end up caricaturing Marxism and postmodernism, and in, in the end, just end up in a defense of capitalism. But you're attending an event uh, called Marxism versus Postmodernism hosted by a Marxist group, so clearly we're not interested in defending capitalism, nor do we think that the ideas of Marxism and the ideas of postmodernism are compatible. The postmodern philosophy may offer up a critique of this or that discourse or like narrative, but in the final analysis, postmodernism is actually the ideological weapon of capitalism for the present time, specifically used as a battering ram against Marxism. So what is postmodernism? Um, since its inception, capitalism has waged a battle of ideas against Marxism. For most of the 19th century and even some of the 20th century, that battle consisted of a much more direct defense of capitalism, the so-called supremacy of capitalism, that it was the best, most prosperous system, that capitalism represented freedom from tyranny and the right to liberty, the pursuit of happiness and the American dream. And I guess on the right, this argument still gets thrown around, but I think for most people, it's pretty obvious that this defense of capitalism stands on thin air. So for this reason, in the latter half of the 20th century following World War II, capitalism was forced to come up with a new tool of defense, one that acknowledged the faults of capitalism, the horrors of the system, and in many ways overemphasized the forms of oppression caused by capitalism and class society more generally. 
So postmodernism or variations of it uh, has become the main philosophical trend under capitalism, but this is all done in a way to convince people that a better world is not possible. So they either work to convince people that socialist revolution is impossible because it's a grand narrative that claims progress in humanity is possible. When in reality, according to them, progress is a Eurocentric product of enlightenment society and needs to be deconstructed instead of reinforced as they say Marxism does. This is according to Jean-Francois Lyotel, a famous postmodernist who wrote, simplifying to the extreme, I define postmodernism as incredulity towards meta-narratives. So that's one example of what they say. Or they argue that it is power in human relationships of any kind that is the source of oppression and exploitation. And this can never be overcome because power and dominance are inherent to the human condition. Therefore, all resistance is futile and even attempts to aspire towards justice or equality are impossible because all they do is reinforce power and with it new forms of oppression. So from this, while in many ways different philosophers and theorists of the postmodern tradition, such as Michel Foucault or Jean-Francois Lyotard, may borrow from Marxism, ultimately their revisions or additions or critiques all end up being an ideological defense of capitalism, even if they criticize or acknowledge the problems of the system and attempt to uh, find a new way to analyze and dismantle power relations. This hypocritical position is obviously done to make people think that capitalism cannot be overcome and human society cannot be understood on a grand scale. So therefore, um, what they'll basically argue is that while meaning individuals could just spend their time helping the little things, minor reforms to make the present panoptic system a little easier to live in. Uh, so in order to fully understand the historical context of postmodernism in the 20th century and why these ideas gained prominence, um, we need to briefly go back to the 19th century and discuss a philosopher by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche is frequently considered the grandfather of postmodernism. Uh, sorry. And writing at the end of the 19th century when capitalism first began to show signs of its waning potential. His idea of the eternal return, his criticisms of historicity, the will to power, and his rejection of reason, objectivity, and rationality all end up leading into subjective idealism, upon which postmodernism is fundamentally based. So both the postmodern philosophers Jacques Derrida and Foucault were extremely influenced by Nietzsche. And in fact, um, many critics of postmodernism that I found from back in the day actually used to refer to this, uh, they would re refer to postmodernism as neo-Nietzscheanism, which I thought was interesting. So Nietzsche was one of the first philosophers to reject any form of historical determinism and progress regarding human society, whether it is liberalism, Christianity, or even Marxism. And this is referred to not specifically by him, but just more generally as a teleological meta-narrative. But in my opinion, lumping liberalism and Marxism together demonstrates a caricature at, at best and really a, uh, a crude distortion of the actual ideas of Marxism at worst. Because again, these schools of thought are, are completely different. Marxism is about a lot more than just like platitudes about the inevitability of the proletariat of the victory of the proletariat, as if this is something teleologically ingrained. And while it is true 
that capitalism objectively creates the conditions for its own overthrow, the subjective factor is that of leadership, which cannot be pre, uh, predetermined. And I just wanna give a small quote by uh, Nietzsche from The Will to Power, because I think it's good to think about when we're also talking about Foucault. So here's the quote, Nietzsche says, um, even the body within which individuals treat each other as equals will have to be an incarnate will to power. It will strive to grow, spread, seize, become predominant, not from any morality or immorality, but because it is living and because life is simply will to power. So in my opinion, uh, I think we can really clearly see how Nietzsche's matrix-like ideas of power uh, will come to shape Foucault's in the next century. And despite the fact that uh, Nietzsche never identified himself as a philosophical idealist, and he argued against a distinction between the real world and the apparent world, his rejection of historical progress is incredibly similar to that of postmodernists like Foucault or Lyotard. Many postmodernists um, use Nietzsche's ideas and combine them eclectically with their own ideas, basically in order to disregard Marx's ideas about historical stages, uh, to disregard how the economics of a given society act as the base with all other ideas and systems flowing up from it as the superstructure and to disregard the world historic task of the working class, that is socialist revolution. So as Marxists, we understand that ideas expressed in a given society, particularly the dominant ideas express more than simply ideas abstractly. So in society, you have the economic base or foundations, as I just said, which are the productive forces of a given society, which make all forms of culture possible, meaning that the technological and cultural level of a given society directly correlates to the economic mode of production in existence at a given time. So during the revolutionary years of capitalist society, so like from the 1600s to the 1800s, capitalism signified a huge leap in the capacity of the productive forces compared to feudalism as, uh, well, comparing that to feudalism, as capitalism in its most progressive form allowed for innovation, expansion, development of machinery and technique, and eventually a much higher standard of living, uh, although more so for uh, the bourgeoisie, obviously. Uh, and in this time, we also saw the rise of the scientific uh, revolution, which was making discoveries that would have been impossible during feudalism when it was the divine right of kings that ruled. And it's no coincidence that during these years, the philosophy of capitalism also reflected this leap forward in the productive forces with genius thinkers such as Immanuel Kant, John Locke, John Stuart Mill, Rousseau, Hegel, Thomas Paine, Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Mary Wollstonecraft, Voltaire, et cetera, there's a lot of them, who all revolutionized the world of philosophy and politics. It is also no coincidence that the theory of evolution was discovered by Charles Darwin during the 19th century, right around the high point of capitalist free trade. So during this period, capitalism believes in progress. So despite the brutal and exploitative features of capitalism, it was still able to develop the means of production in order to lay the basis for a higher stage of human society, which is socialism. But by the 20th century, following the late 1880s, 1890s scramble for Africa, which was the last colonialist venture in capitalist history, essentially, or uh, basically directly preceding the last organic boom of capitalism. So by this time, capitalism had essentially begun to run its course. In 1916, uh, Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, wrote a very important book 
called Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism that everyone here should read. Uh, but this, anyway, this book explained that imperialism is not just a random phenomena, but rather uh, it is the point at which capitalism is at its peak. Imperialism means that capitalism has stretched its tentacles, leaving no country untouched. Finance and industrial capital have combined, monopoly capitalism has taken over, and free trade is essentially dead. This period demonstrates that capitalism could develop no further and had begun to act as a fetter upon the productive forces of society, while simultaneously creating the conditions for its own overthrow and the creation of the class which would come to overthrow it, the working class. So from this period, we begin to see the decline of capitalism as a productive revolutionary system. And it is no coincidence that directly following and during World War I, we saw a massive wave of revolutionary action across Europe. The waning twilight of capitalism, which almost drowned the workers in blood, was immediately followed by the dawn of socialist revolution. And of course, as we know now, the revolutions in the 1910s and 20s in countries such as Germany and Italy went down into failure with the exception of Russia. Capitalism then went into crisis in Europe. And then with the 1929 stock market crash, the whole system went into a very deep crisis. And we saw the conclusions of that with the rise of fascism and Nazism in the 20s and 30s. So while World War I had a profoundly pessimistic effect on the consciousness of the petty bourgeoisie in the 20s and 30s, where we saw the rise of philosophies such as existentialism, phenomenology, and even Dadaism, the impact of World War II was even more disorienting and devastating. It is also in this time period, so like um, 1920 to 1945, that we saw the failure of the revolution in Germany, which led to a layer of petty bourgeois intellectuals in the Frankfurt School expressing pessimism over the potential of revolution in Europe, as well as the strengthening of Stalinism, which is a caricature of Marxism and I will go into later. But uh, so much of what we see to do with postmodernist philosophy has its roots in the 20th century failure of the proletariat to take power. The traumas of global imperialist capitalism, the rise of Stalinism, and the inability of the petty bourgeois intelligentsia to understand why Hitler happened, why World War II happened, why the Holocaust happened, and the atom bomb happened. In 1956, Theodore Adorno, who was a Frankfurt School philosopher, wrote that to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. And additionally, many academics have stated that the bombing of Hiroshima ushered in the end of the Hegelian dialectic, essentially stating that the horrors of World War II had destroyed purpose in humanity, and thus any search for grand meaning in the world was pointless. It took several more decades for postmodernism to really gain ascendance. And it was mainly in the decades following the failure of May 1968, which was a revolutionary movement that began with the students and sparked a general strike of 10 million workers that was subsequently betrayed by the PCF, uh, the like, French Communist Party, and it was in this period that postmodernism really began to emerge. So postmodernism, above all, represents a decay of bourgeois ideology, represented in the pessimistic outlook of the intelligentsia and academic petty bourgeoisie in periods of capitalist decline. And while some of these postmodern professors use left-wing radical rhetoric, in reality, their class position and outlook is typically very petty bourgeois, as I said, and very middle class. And because capitalism squeezes the petty bourgeois, they tend to be very pessimistic and cynical about society and also very divorced from class struggle. So therefore, 
they can't make these connections and they can't develop an independent class position or offer any solutions to the problems of society. So many of the burgeoning postmodernists were also ex-Stalinists. They were demoralized with what they had seen in Hungary in 1956, when Khrushchev rolled the tanks into Budapest to crush the working class movement there. And they were demoralized by the Prague Spring of 1968 when Brezhnev rolled tanks into Prague to crush the working class movement there. So they began to hunt for new ideas due to Stalinism, which they saw as rigid and inflexible, not allowing for the complexity of reality. And I've mentioned the term Stalinism a couple of times. And I just want to touch on like as briefly as you can possibly touch on the topic of Stalinism uh, for a second before I move on. So following, uh, just to explain this term, following the Russian Revolution of 1917, there was a period of extremely unideal conditions of backwardness and isolation in the Soviet Union. And during this time, there became a vacuum of power where the working class, destroyed and demoralized by seven years of war and the above mentioned conditions, uh, was unable to engage in political and economic life as they had before. A bureaucratic clique rose to power in this vacuum and Stalin ended up becoming their representative. Over time, the bureaucracy took power over the state and began to work it, not in the interest of the working class, but uh, in maintaining the privileges of that bureaucracy. And in doing so, they had to distort Marxism to basically just maintain the status quo, which they benefited from. So as a result, the ideas of Stalin, which he called Marxism-Leninism, uh, which is funny because it's actually neither, uh, these ideas were incredibly categorical, mechanistic, and fixed. So during a number of historical instances, um, such as like China, Spain, Germany, et cetera, I can't get into them. The mistakes of the communist parties of the world, including the PCF, can be attributed to uh, the influence of Stalinism on these parties. Additionally, uh, the bureaucracy was incredibly reactionary, rolling back a number of reforms in the Soviet Union that had helped women and the LGBTQ plus community in order to stabilize the family as the economic unit in society and solidify the regime. So. The communist parties, which again by this time had nothing to do with the ideas of Lana and Trotsky, were also putting forward mechanistic positions about race and gender, which only really furthered divisions between working people and people of different races and genders and sexualities, who thought because of what the Stalinists were saying that Marxists only cared about class and not other issues. However, this is very important, issues that get re referred to sometimes as identity politics are in fact issues of the working class. And in struggling to abolish capitalism, we have to struggle to abolish all forms of oppression um, as well, alongside all oppressed groups. So uh, many of the postmodernists who were critiquing Marxism during this time were not actually critiquing Marxism at all. They were critiquing Stalinism and using Stalinism to further distort Marxism and aid their own philosophical and political theories. To criticize the rigid dogmatism of Stalinism and to call it a critique of Marxism, for one thing, ignores the Marxist critique of Stalinism put forward by Trotsky in the 20s and 30s, but it also ends up dropping revolution and socialism entirely. So it's a really pessimistic conclusion to come to after all this. It is re it's really unfortunate how the intellectual bankruptcy of Stalinism served to destroy the working class movement, but ultimately it's up to us to rectify these distortions and reclaim Marxism. So just continuing, the 19th and 20th centuries were obviously very important for capitalism due to the mentioned, or sorry, to the reasons I've already mentioned. Um, but it was also very important due to the many advances made in the realm of sciences, both human and natural, 
uh, such as archaeology, biology, anthropology, etc., which revealed the true complex and contradictory nature of human society. From this, it appears that instead of trying to tackle the questions being raised and the discoveries being made, the bourgeois philosophers in this period simply gave up on trying to understand human society and decided that it could not be understood. And in particular, the bourgeoisie lost confidence in generalizations, basically in the idea that uh, you can comprehend many contradictory things with one fundamental theory. In the case of postmodernism, when human society became increasingly complex and contradictory, as I said, they just like decided that historical progress, historical stages of development, etc., were all fictions or narratives made up by various groups, which they usually label modernists, in order to convince people of some greater meaning to their lives. So what would have been needed during this time was a dialectical approach to understanding contradictions and changes within human history and human society. But bourgeois philosophy was really incapable of doing this as it would have required the negation of capitalism itself. And it turned back at this crossroads in the social sciences and humanities and, and began a period of senile decline. Again, rooted in the contradiction in the productive forces, but this time in this way expressed in the social sciences. It fell back into an individualism, but whereas before the individualism of the early bourgeoisie was optimistic and based on this idea that the individual through their selfishness could help build a better, richer world, but the individualism of the 20th century or the later 20th century was one of cynicism, pessimism, and decadence. This phenomenon of the poverty of the ideas of the ruling class during the decline in its particular epoch is not new, nor is it really unique to capitalism. Historically speaking, this occurred during the fall of the Roman Empire, which lasted for centuries following the failure of the slave uprisings, when there became an overall sentiment of malaise, skepticism, lack of faith in the old order, and pessimism about the future among the people. In periods of uncertainty, such as this, it is common for people to struggle to understand the world that they live in and seek out new gods and new religions, of which Christianity was really only one. At this time, many began to believe that uh, the end of the world was upon them, but in reality, it was only the end of slave society. This is much uh, like what we see today with the postmodernists. As capitalism is incapable of progressing society, the ideologues of the bourgeois argue that progress itself is a fiction in order to, to justify the continuation of capitalism. For accepting progress would open up the floodgates to the revolutionary ideas of the working class, those of Marxism, and it would demonstrate that the capitalist system has outlived its usefulness. So one thing I think that is very, very ironic and hypocritical about the postmodern denial of progress and rejection of meta-narratives uh, like Marxism is this, to claim that there is no such thing as historical stages and that all of history is just like random power relations that we can't understand or generalize on a grand scale is in itself a grand narrative. And it's a, a grand narrative or a meta-narrative, it's their, their term, not not our term, but anyway, it's a, a meta-narrative of the worst kind because it's done so crudely and so specifically to undermine any form of an emancipatory worldview, specifically Marxism, by telling us that struggling for a better world is pointless because liberation is impossible. And I found a quote that I really liked. It's by uh, Selah Ben Habib, who is a Turkish and American professor 
And this is her quote on what postmodernists such as Lyotard and Derrida actually think. So she said, um, transcendental guarantees of truth are dead. The, in the agonal struggle of language games, there is no commensurability. There are no criteria of truth transcending local discourses, but only the endless struggle of local narratives vying with one another for legitimization. So postmodernism deconstructs the grand narratives of liberalism and Christianity and Marxism, but it does not attempt to understand why they came to exist and the historical necessity of the various stages in society, nor does it give us any, like, any suggestions for how to overcome the shortcomings in these ideologies. And as we know, ideas don't just like fall from the sky, they are rooted in the material conditions of various epochs. Postmodernism attempts to divorce ideologies from the economic roots and criticize them as narratives alone. And it's like, sure, the, the narratives of liberalism of like pull yourself up by your bootstraps and anyone can be successful if they work hard enough are problematic narratives, but it's not enough to simply hold skepticism about the narrative. The root of the problem isn't the narrative told by Western civilization. And if you think that it is, and that's a fundamentally idealist position that ideas shape reality. Jacques Derrida also has this idea that reason is not connected to class society and the interests of the ruling class at each age, but rather that reason is a social and cultural construct that attempts to attach language and description to the world, but due to the fallibility of language, nothing can be reliably known. So here's a quote that I have uh, from him about science. He says, what is called objectivity, scientific, uh, for instance, in which I firmly believe in a given situation, imposes itself only within a context which is extremely vast, old, firmly established, or rooted in a network of conventions, and yet which still remains a context. So according to him, because the concepts of reason and rationality have been used to justify fascism and totalitarianism, then reason itself is logocentric and must be deconstructed as well, according to Derrida which doesn't really make any sense to me because by this logic, uh, because race science was used to justify the Holocaust and he's saying that all science is fake and bad and should be, should be deconstructed, but simply because science and reason have been used for horrible ends, it doesn't mean that we can't take the best discoveries of bourgeois society into our own hands and set them to work in our own methods for the interest and betterment of the working class. And you can deconstruct and dismantle all you want but if you have nothing to replace these ideas and systems with, then you're basically just admitting defeat. An aspect uh, to postmodernist theory that I wanna briefly touch on again uh, is this idea that um, all the old modernist ideas are bad. And what we, what we really need is uh, our new ideas. Uh, Jean Baudrillard is a postmodernist philosopher who wrote about this idea uh, essentially stating that due to the uh, explosion of technology, media, and complexity of existence in the postmodern world, uh, he says that signs are more real than actual real things. And this, pardon me if I pronounce it wrong, is called the simulacrum. And in fact, uh, Baudrillard does not actually believe that the working class is real. And I have a quote that he says. So he says, he says, the Marxist says, the mass of workers, but the mass is never that of the workers, nor any other social subject or object. The mass is without attribute, predicate, quality, reference. This is its definition. It has no sociological reality. 
It has nothing to do with any real population, body, or specific social aggregate. So for this reason, he argues that socialist revolution is impossible because signs and symbols have taken over reality. And he calls this hyper-reality. And he really just says that because media and technology have made everybody so confused, they no longer comprehend class society anymore, and they can't revolt because they don't know what's going on. Basically meaning that all anybody can rely on is their own subjective interpretation of events. And in my opinion, these ideas are very reminiscent of the 18th century philosopher uh, George Berkeley, who is a subjective idealist that argued that and I'm quoting, to have an idea is just the same as to perceive. Therefore, inverting the primacy of the material world in order to maintain that it is consciousness that determines life and not life that determines consciousness as Marx correctly asserted in the German ideology. The subjective idealism of Berkeley was already thoroughly debunked by Lenin in 1909 in his book, Materialism and Imperial Criticism, which I can't go into because of time. However, if anyone wants in the discussion, please do. But anyway, so if all these new ideas really do is repeat subjective idealism, which is basically just solipsism, I don't really think they're that new. Because if there's no discernible objective reality and reason and rationality are fake and everything is just competing narratives about subjective experiences, then how can we really know anything at all? So for all these new ideas of Baudrillard, Derrida and Liu Tao, all they really end up doing was repackaging subjective idealism, a long defeated worldview in radical rhetoric, offering no solutions and thereby just like basic, basically just obscurely restating liberalism. So ultimately it is only the ideas of Marxism, of militant materialism and class struggle that offer a way out for the working class and that have really stood the test of time and like leading that can lead the uh, sorry lead a way out for the working class out of the impasse of the capitalist system that we currently find ourselves in. So uh, I'm almost done. Uh, one last postmodernist philosopher that I'd like to discuss today in greater detail is Foucault, who I briefly mentioned in the beginning of this presentation. He is the most influential and well-known postmodernist, considered the father of sociology. So Foucault rose to prominence in the 1960s and 70s following this disillusionment um, from the Communist Party that I described earlier, and much like Derrida and Lyotard, opposed grand narratives and generalizations about human society and history overall. He especially opposed Marxism and thought that his ideas about power could explain the Stalinist degeneration of the Soviet Union. Foucault was very interested in studying things like power, punishment and prisons, madness, insanity, sexuality and institutions, throughout the modern to postmodern period, all of which he studied in a very separate atomized case-by-case -case basis. So as the class struggle ebbed following 1968, in the wake of countless betrayals by the worker leaders, the intellectuals like Foucault concluded that it was in fact the class struggle and the working class, which was flawed and not its leadership. But what they really did was adapt their philosophy to the interests of the bourgeoisie and the labor bureaucracy. So in their minds, the class struggle was dissolved into an infinite series of small individual struggles with no common characteristics. This is seen no clearer than in the works of Foucault, who called for a change in discourses or language around power and knowledge, rather than revolutions by the working class against capitalism. In one of his texts, The History of Sexuality, he says, there is no locus of great refusal, no soul of revolt, 
source of all rebellions or pure law of the revolutionary. Instead, there is a plurality of resistances, each of them a special case. So according to Foucault, and this idea is expressed in all of his work, um, he says that all of human history is different, unrelated forms of power, expressing itself in binaries, which are basically just constructed, such as men, women, gay, straight, et cetera, that cannot be overcome, but merely uh, power transferred through discourse. And I can understand why some people would conflate this with Marxism if they didn't know much about Marxism, because uh, it also deals with dualistic opposites, such as the antagonism between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. However, we, unlike Foucault, argue not that it is the abstract idea of power at the root of domination in society, but rather that class society, which came into existence 12,000 years ago, gave rise to the domination of one class over the other due to the advent of surplus and the necessity for a division of labor to control said surplus. Foucault's philosophical ideas are also fundamentally idealist in that he thinks that through discourse, that is opposing sides, we can change the language of power and change society. His ideas of power are really vague and they're kind of weird, uh, but I have a quote from the history of sexuality that I think really sums up his ideas. It's a bit of a long quote, I apologize, but I do think it's important. So he says, the omnipresence of power, because it is produced from, from one moment to the next, at every point, or rather in every relation from one point to another, power is everywhere. Not because it embraces everything, but because it comes from everywhere. Power is not an institution and not a structure. Neither is it a certain strength we are endowed with. It is the name that one attributes to a complex strategical situation in a particular society. So there's a lot of big words that really say nothing about his abstract and unclear notion of power. And he also argues that it is changes in society's discourse around laws and justice that has overthrown old feudal orders in past revolutions. And I have another quote, please forgive me, uh, where he says, these great forms of power functioned as a principle of right. Such was the language of power, the representation it gave it itself. In Western society since the Middle Ages, the exercise of power has always been formulated in terms of law. A tradition dating back to the 18th or 19th century has accustomed us to place absolute monarchic power on the side of the unlawful. So according to Foucault, the Marxist analysis that it was the emergence of a capitalist mode of production that overturned the old feudal order uh, is wrong, our understanding is wrong, and it is in fact tradition that just like led us to suddenly believe that the monarchy was unjust and overthrow it. This is the result of a theory that views history as a construction of discourses. I sincerely apologize again, like for these long quotes, uh, but I feel like it's very important that we allow Foucault to speak for himself instead of strawmanning his ideas to make our point, because his ideas are bad enough. We really don't need to do that. So anyway, it's interesting. Because Foucault argues um, in his work that not only are prisons prisons, but also schools, hospitals, military barracks, universities, and factories are all prisons, but we can't make any generalizations about the material conditions of class society or capitalism because that would be a grand narrative. Foucault refers to this vision of society of basically just like endless prisons with no way out as the panopticon which literally means a watchtower over a prison that sees everything, making escape impossible. So Foucault was also in, uh, extremely foundational in sociology and is considered in a lot of ways to be the founder of modern social justice. As one article I found defending Foucault said, Foucault's 
focus on discursive power thoroughly lent itself to the growth of identity politics and the new social movements, which basically means we have Foucault to thank for the new left, modern identity politics, critical theory, and intersectional feminism. And this fact can, in my opinion, really be seen in the divisive consequences of privilege politics, the overemphasis on narratives and lived experiences, stay in your lane politics, the idea that men and white men and white people, straight people, et cetera, are categorically inherently oppressive. Uh, all these ideas, and these are all ideas that we constantly see on the non-revolutionary left. The focus on discourses, particularly on the online left, has a debt, a real debt to Foucault. And I personally, from my own experiences, uh, cannot count the hours that I wasted uh, arguing with strangers on Tumblr about whether or not this or that group benefited from the oppression of another group, particularly different groups that are already in the LGBTQ plus community. But uh, it's changes in the material conditions of society in reality that pushes working class, uh, the working class into action against oppression and exploitation, not discourse. So to be honest, change cannot come until there are the economic conditions that lay the basis for the transformation of society through revolution. And to use some common terminology, uh, the logical conclusions of this pessimistic philosophy of postmodernism end up trading in revolution for individual forms of activism, like analyzing microaggressions and language policing, without any understanding of where these forms of oppression come from and how they can be overcome. And we can criticize Karens and call out people who use slurs as much as we want, but when these things are seen as problems in and of themselves, as opposed to the trickle-down effects of capitalist oppression, we begin to see the fight against oppression as simply a whole bunch of things not to say so you don't offend anybody, with no explanation of why these things keep popping up in society and how to end them. The mainstreaming of bite-sized therapy sessions and political ideas in, into um, Instagram infographics has led many genuine young people who wish to change society into believing that cancel culture and language policing is revolutionary. In reality, all these individualistic forms of activism do is reaffirm the postmodernist lie that language is reality. And in order to change reality, we just have to change the narrative. This has been done uh, to distract people from class struggle, to put the working class on the back burner under the guise of focusing on race and gender, when in reality, as I previously stated, none of these things can be seen in isolation. Issues of race, gender, sexuality, et cetera, are working class issues and always have been. And I'm gonna conclude really soon, uh, but I wanted to emphasize Foucault's idealist method of changing society through discourses and power, which ultimately only serves to like diversify the ruling class. And as I said earlier, ultimately it's not ideas that shape the world, but the world that shapes ideas. Changes in ideas represent changes in material conditions. And we can see this with the massive BLM movement, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, from now, from today, that brings expression to the fundamental issues faced by black people in our society, such as police brutality. Postmodernists like Foucault don't understand this. And it is even misunderstood on other levels uh, by queer theorists like Judith Butler, and even critical race theorists uh, like Kimberly Crenshaw, who believe that the issues of racism, homophobia, and gender-based discrimination are problems of uh, frameworks. That if we change the framework, the narrative, the lens, whatever, the discourse, we can change the objective conditions of reality. But this is not the case. And uh, just to clarify my prior point, Marxist, 
don't take issue with identity politics or intersectionality because we disagree with the fight against oppression. Marxists absolutely understand how various forms of oppression multiply and compound to create different experiences of oppression and have written about this idea for over a century. My, my issue and Marxist issues with these theories uh, is their non-class-based approach to struggle and the fact that these ideas do not offer explicitly revolutionary solutions, which is how they end up being co-opted by liberal capitalism so often. The solution that Marxism offers is that of united class struggle against all forms of oppression and exploitation, as united struggle is the most important weapon that the working class possesses, which can free us. Marxism has to defend this unity constantly until the end, and therefore struggles for the inclusion of all people of different races, genders, identities, sexualities, abilities, religions, etc. Uh, we have to welcome all these groups into the struggle against the ruling class, the capitalist system, and all forms of oppression that come with it. But also as Marxists, we need to reject ideas like postmodernism, because above all, the ideas of Foucault, Derrida, Biotel, Baudrillard, and the rest of them are profoundly pessimistic ideas. They describe oppression, they tell us there is nothing concrete we can do about it. There are no solutions in the ideas of Foucault or any of the other postmodernists that I talked about. Postmodernism denies history and denies stages, yet the root of these ideas express a historical stage of capitalism that must be overcome. They express the poverty of ideas at the impasse of capitalism. As Marxists, we have to refuse to accept, like the postmodernists, that the working class is a lost cause, that they are too privileged to, to revolt. Because to accept such a lie would be to accept a life of misery and toil, of oppression and exploitation. One thing that really sets apart Marxists from the rest of the left is our unrelenting revolutionary optimism that is constantly proven correct by the wave of movements that have occurred across the world, from Ecuador to Lebanon, to France, to Iraq, to, to Sudan, to India, to Brazil, even the USA, the masses of workers are rising up against their exploiters. The objective world situation is ripe for revolution. And in fact, to paraphrase Leon Trotsky, it is rotten for revolution. The bourgeoisie has far surpassed its historical task, that is, raising the productive forces of society so that the working class can take the reins. All that is missing on today's stage is the subjective leadership that can aid the proletariat in the struggle towards victory. So despite the uh, so-called end of grand narratives and the new uh, postmodern era, history did not end in 1991 and has continued unabated. The world is on fire, figuratively and literally. And when the working, uh, the working class revolts, we need to be there with them every step of the way for the liberation of humanity and the 21st century socialist revolution. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this alone. So if you agree with us, get involved. You can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte.
for international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at Marxist.com. The music in this episode is General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. It can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.